Amen. Thank you, Aaron and team, for leading us in worship this morning. You know, my wife and I are very careful with screen time at my house. We don't allow our children too much screen time. You know, it rots their brains and those kinds of things. But, you know, I, I read a, a post this morning that said that this may be one of the most redemptive uses of screens uh, in history, that the Lord is using screens now to bring the preaching of his word, the worship of his name uh, to, to millions around the world. I know so many of my friends who are streaming their services this morning, and I'm so grateful uh, for the technology to do it. So I never thought I'd be grateful for the screens, but this morning I am extremely grateful for the screen time that uh, you're experiencing right now through the worship and the word. So we're going to continue our series uh, that we've been doing for this Lenten season called in dust and ashes, a Lenten journey with Jesus. So for these six Sundays in Lent, we're going to look at passages from the Gospel of Matthew that have to do with these Lenten themes of confession and repentance and fasting and prayer and, and things that aren't always fun to talk about, but they're so important and necessary to the Christian life. We talked about how Lent is not a time to, to beat ourselves up and make ourselves feel bad and guilty, but it's a time to realign the trajectory of our lives with God's trajectory, to go where God is going, to line up our lives with the life of Jesus Christ. It's a season to take a few steps back as the, the days begin to lengthen. That's the, where the word Lent comes from. It's, it's from the old English word to lengthen, as the days get longer, it's a time to pause and to reflect on what's most important in our lives. Where are our priorities? What is it that we value and love the most? And sometimes this realignment takes some force, doesn't it? Things don't just line up easily. Sometimes you have to knock something. And so a realigning our lives sometimes requires a force that we normally would not apply to it. And that's where the practices of confession and repentance and prayer and fasting come into play. If we will allow them to, those rich Christian practices can bring that realignment that we so badly need to our lives. I mentioned last week how we need to notice that this global pandemic of the coronavirus is occurring during <coughs> excuse me, this season of Lent. I reposted on social media one of my friends who made the quip, uh, and you thought you weren't giving up anything for Lent this year. <laughs> we've all given up something, right? I'm not just talking about toilet paper. We've, we've given up uh, some things have been an inconvenience. I know Rachel couldn't go on a trip that she wanted to go on because it was canceled, and uh, we've had several people who couldn't go someplace that they wanted to go to or had to refund their tickets. I had a conference that I didn't get to go to. Of course, those things happen. But for others, it's become much more serious. For others, they've become gravely ill or someone they know has become gravely ill. Others have died. We know that the, the counts continue to rise, that we know that there will be funerals coming um, to our state and around the world as well. Um, we know that this time that we're in right now is indeed a global crisis. But I believe that in those times, the Lord wants to do something special if we will allow him to in our own lives and in the life of our church. Whether you planned on observing Lent or not, 
you are right now in a Lenten season. You are giving up something, I know, because we've all been forced to step back and take stock of what really matters in our own lives. My prayer continues to be that somehow we'll see the Lord work good out of this tragic and, and terrible situation that we're in. So today we're going to look at a passage from the greatest sermon of all time, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We read last week how Jesus had been tempted in the wilderness immediately after his baptism and how he had deflected the flaming arrows of the enemy by using the shield of the word of God uh, against him. And then we know that Jesus left the wilderness and began his public ministry. He went out and called the first disciples, and then he took those new disciples throughout the region of Galilee, and he was healing sicknesses, and he was preaching in the synagogues, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God come to earth. And of course, he developed a, a following, uh, disciples that, that continued to follow him everywhere he went. These learners were curious, so they began to see, what is this guy about? And he goes up to a ridge that overlooked the Sea of Galilee, somewhere near the, the region of Capernaum. Uh, most archaeologists think they have the, the location located where uh, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you have been there. I know you've shown me pictures of the, the sea from this mount that Jesus preached from. And he sits down, as the rabbis did in those days, and he proceeds to give these words of authority, these beautiful words about life in the kingdom of God, how we can live into the reality of God's goodness and God's love and God's grace and God's power right here and now, even in the midst of a pandemic and a crisis. So this Sermon on the Mount is all about how to exist as a new creation, as, as God's new covenant people in the kingdom of God that is breaking into our world in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, if it's not too awkward, I invite you to stand wherever you are for the reading of God's word, to get off the couch and to join us as we hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, and then 16 to 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, when I was in high school, one of my best friends was an atheist. At least I think she was an atheist. We didn't really talk a lot about spiritual matters. I wish I had told her more about the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, the greatness of God's unfailing love for her. But we didn't talk a lot about those kinds of things because I was a pretty immature Christian during that time. I didn't really understand how to speak to somebody who was an unbeliever and how important it was to do those kinds of things. And I, I was so immature as a Christian that, that I remember specifically being put to shame by my friend one day. We were walking together between classes in the hallway and there was a, a small freshman boy in front of us who was frantically trying to get to his next class and he tripped and he dropped his binder on the floor and papers went everywhere. And I immediately pointed and laughed. And my friend punched me in the arm and gave me a look that could have killed. And she put her own books down on the floor and she began to, to help pick up the papers of this poor freshman kid. Who was it that was acting more in line with the kingdom of God? Me, who was raised in church, who had been, uh, become baptized believer at age seven? Or my friend who professed there is no God? You know, I hear one of the biggest conviction, uh, biggest obstacles to Christianity is Christians themselves you know, or at least people who claim to be Christians. One of the most common objections that I hear to our faith is that those of us who practice it are hypocrites. And this is not a new problem. We know that here in the Bible Belt, yes, there are still many people who may show up on a church roll. They may even show up in a pew here in church when we actually do meet for worship. They may actually give some money. They may actually be a leader in their church, but their hearts are far from the Lord. The Bible talks a lot about this kind of hypocrisy, people who proclaim to know God, but in fact do not know him at all. The, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 29, in verse 13, the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah and says, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You know, the problem isn't religion. The problem is man-made religion. There's a, a prominent atheist author that many of you have heard of, Christopher Hitchens. He wrote a best-selling book uh, a few years ago called God is Not Great. And the subtitle was How Religion poisons everything. And I would say he's absolutely right. He is. In a lot of ways, he's, he's dead on. Because man-made religion is toxic. It poisons everything. 
we know that much harm in our world uh, has been done in the name of God. We know that, that toxic religion has caused so many evils and, and, and so much affliction in our world, even today. But consider this. If there is a, a, a religion, a kind of religion that truly comes from the heart of the living God himself, if there's a religion that is actually true and divinely inspired and oriented, then that changes everything. True religion isn't enslavement. True religion is freedom to, to live into the kingdom reality of flourishing in this life and the next. True religion isn't toxic to our communities. True religion helps bring heaven to earth. True religion doesn't exclude the, the, the needy or the marginalized. True religion cares for the sick and the oppressed and those on the fringes of society. True religion doesn't corrupt in a, in a poison kind of way. True religion results in holiness and flourishing. James chapter 1, verse 27 makes this clear. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction once social distancing is over and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's the kind of religion that I believe with all my heart that Christianity is. If you've become burned or, or jaded or, or poisoned by toxic religion, then I would encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's like a cool drink of water to a desert soul. Let's hear these words of Jesus today as a much-needed alternative, a much-needed corrective to toxic religion. Jesus addresses here in our passage today three practices that in and of themselves are good things but had become corrupted through man-made religion. These religious people of his day had really made a mess even of giving to the poor, of prayer, and of fasting. His thesis statement is, is here in verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then as a good preacher does, Jesus then launches into his application and the illustration starting in verse two. Verse two says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. I think Jesus is funny too. I think he's being funny and painting pictures of these people who would blare a trumpet. Look at what I'm doing. Don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You know, he's basically saying, okay, you want people to notice you and say, wow, look at that person. What a great person they are. They're so generous. They're so thoughtful. If you want people to notice you and say those things, great. You can have that. You can have that. You can bring attention to yourself, and that's your reward. Attention. Human attention. But what if the ambition to be noticed, the ambition to be affirmed and liked by people, what if that ambition is actually settling? 
What if that ambition is aiming too low? James K.A. Smith, one of my favorite authors, in his new book, On the Road with St. Augustine, he asked this question. What happens when people's attention turns away, fleeting as it is? What happens after you get the, the grass garland, the medal, the scholarship, the promotion? How many likes is enough? How many followers will make you feel valued? What if you're wired not to be liked, but to be loved? Not by many, but by one. Could that explain why all the attention is never enough? Or why a kind of postpartum depression sets in after every win? Every time you make it to the top of what you thought was the mountain of achievement? Why does winning leave you feeling so restless? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. Our aim is too low. The reward that we think we want is ultimately unsatisfying. But the love of God fills a hole in our heart that nothing else can or will. All other prizes leave us feeling empty like the dog who catches the car that he's chasing. Have you ever seen a dog catch a car? It seems like such fun to chase the car, but what happens when the dog actually catches this 2,000-pound piece of metal moving? It's not really that fun anymore. And yet we do this all the time. The thing that we spend our lives chasing after is not even what we ultimately wanted. And we, we do this. We settle for a lesser reward than what the Lord offers to us. So what's the answer? How do we live into the reality of God's provision in his kingdom? Jesus tells us how. Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you know what muscle memory is? You know, um, Kobe Bryant, I read that he wouldn't let himself leave the gym until he had made, not taken, but made 1,000 jump shots. So that in a game, when he got the ball, he wouldn't think about it. His muscles knew what to do when he shot the ball. You know, a, a well-honed golf swing is, is not something that a beginner can just walk up and do. It takes repetition and practice to teach your muscles to remember a specific movement. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about here when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Giving to the poor should become such a part of who we are. It should be ingrained in our DNA to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves. How relevant is this text today when we know so many who are out of work, so many who are experiencing economic hardship? The church is commanded to share the resources we have to give generously to those who need it the most. I know, I, I love how John Stott, the, the Anglican priest, he put it, Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulation. When we give, it's not about us. It's gotta be a self-forgetting act when we give. And the same thing is true with prayer. Look at verse five. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You know, the first thing to notice here is that Jesus assumes these people pray. 
He doesn't say if you pray, he says when you pray. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that so many churches lack the Holy Spirit power in their church because they lack prayer. Prayer is our conduit to the living God. It's our lifeline to an inexhaustible resource of power. If we're going to see a mighty movement of God in our churches and in our city, it's only going to come through prayer. We have to commit ourselves as Christians to prayer. You know, Daniel prayed three times a day. The, the psalmist talks about how he prays six times a day. We would do well to commit ourselves to communing with God himself. How does Jesus tell us to pray? Well, first he tells us how not to pray. Look at verse 5 again. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. You know, just like with giving to the poor, some people were using their public prayers to increase their own reputation, which is so ironic because prayer, the whole point of prayer is to get the focus off of ourselves and onto the living God. Prayer that is about us is not prayer at all. Prayer that exalts us and not Jesus is no kind of prayer. But the problem is that our, our human fallen, broken, sinful nature is, as Augustine put it, curved in, bent in on ourselves. In curvatus in se, Augustine said, we're, we're, we're prone to, to only navel gaze in our own lives. But the gospel of the kingdom is that we can become free. We can become open to the Lord and to the grace of Jesus Christ. We can become unbent, and prayer is the key to that holy unfolding. Look at verse 6. When you pray, again, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the kind of prayer that, that happens without any side glances as to who might be watching. I remember reading this passage, again, as a very immature high schooler, and thinking, Anyone who prays in public is a hypocrite. No one should pray. We should quit praying in public, and I do it every week now in the pastoral prayer. How ironic is that? Of course, I didn't understand that Jesus is not condemning public prayer necessarily here. We know that Jesus himself prayed publicly in John chapter 11, Matthew chapter 14, as did many other saints of the Bible. There's power in, in public prayer when we're gathered together as, as the people of God, even remotely. But the emphasis here is on the secret inner reality that we can commune in our deepest selves, in our souls, with the living God of all creation in the secret place. In prayer, we experience intimacy with the infinite. In prayer, we dwell with the divine in a spiritual reality that is deeper and even more real than everything that we see and touch and taste and smell in this world. What about fasting? Again, Jesus focuses on these aspects of, of being noticed and, and bringing attention to ourselves and not putting the attention on him. And he focuses on the rewards that 
accompany earthly attention versus divine attention. Verse 16 says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, we don't talk a lot about fasting in the evangelical church, and that's another crucial omission. Jesus doesn't explicitly command us to fast, so if you don't fast, that's up to you, but you're missing out on the riches of a spiritual practice that is given to us in Scripture as an opportunity to grow as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. By fasting, we learn not to be ruled by our, our physical reality and material appetites, but to focus on the spiritual realities and on God's ultimate perfect provision for his people. Again, I, I feel like we're all learning in this season of, of Lent and of, of sheltering in place. We're learning about fasting, whether we want to or not. We're learning how to go without. We're learning how to go without. For extroverts like me, we're going without social interaction. Whenever I am at the grocery store, I just want to talk to everybody in there because I miss being with people so much. But fasting reminds us of where our true provision, where our ultimate fulfillment comes from. The source is not this world or anything in this world, but God alone. Lent is the, the perfect time to, to give something up in order to focus our attention on the Lord and to unfold off of ourselves and unbend. As Scotty Smith said right here in this pulpit a few weeks ago, it's a season for cross-surveying, not navel-gazing. We're heading towards Holy Week. The, the cross and the resurrection is, is what we're going to be focusing on here. It's a season to look at those glorious things, not to bend in on ourselves. But fasting could come in any season and for any reason. Maybe you have a big decision to make. I know Rachel, before she came here as our children's pastor, she fasted and prayed, and she asked her parents to fast and pray with her as well. Maybe you're broken over some major sin in your life, and you need to repent, and fasting is a part of that repentance process. Maybe you're preparing for a major ministry or a mission that the Lord has called you to, and you want to fast in preparation. But the, the main reason that we fast, as, as John Piper so beautifully put it, is to nourish our hunger for God and to reduce our hunger for the world. That's an unbelievable reward in itself when you learn to not depend on the world, but to depend on the inexhaustible resources of the living God. If we could lessen our love for the counterfeit gods of this world, the idols that compete for our attentions and affections, if we could learn to feed our innermost being with God's perfect grace, then we would be satisfied indeed. Fasting feeds our souls. The, the Puritans used to call fasting, fasting soul fattening. I love that. Fasting is soul fattening. I'm, I'm, I'm gorging my soul on the Lord. 
To close, let's look at verses 19 to 21. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. You know, we all chase what we love. We all resemble what we chase. Our lives are defined by the chase and the object of which we are chasing after. For those who are chasing the big 2000 metal car of money, of success, of popularity, whatever it may be, then ultimately that counterfeit God is going to fail us. It's never gonna be enough to satisfy our souls. And in fact, just like a dog when it catches a moving car, it's dangerous. I pray that we could all say with confidence that that beautiful fourth stanza of the hymn we just sang, Be Thou My Vision, Riches I Heed Not, Nor Man's Empty Praise, Thou Mine Inheritance, Now and Always, Thou and Thou Only, First in My Heart, High King of Heaven, My Treasure Thou Art. So what do you treasure? What is it that you're setting your, your sights on, your ambitions, your energies? What are you chasing after? Are you setting your sights too low today? Are you settling for the things of this world? Are you hoping for riches or man's empty praise? Or are you flourishing in the freedom that Christ offers you? Are you becoming unbent? Are you sick and tired of, of navel-gazing and trying to maintain the provisions of this world. Don't settle for the fleeting things of this world. Look to the cross of Christ and to his kingdom and live and flourish as you were meant to. You know, I, I love the illustration that C.S. Lewis gives and I think about it often and I refer to it often as well. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We sin not because our desires are too strong but because they're too weak. We settle. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What is your treasure today? For there your heart will be also. If you're treasuring the things of this world, I invite you to repent, to come home to the Lord today, like the prodigal son who'd been living in the, in the far country and who had spent everything that he had and squandered it and came sulking back home. And his father didn't berate him, but he ran to meet him and he threw his robe off and he ran. Gentlemen didn't run back then. And he threw his arms around his son and said, welcome home.
We're going to sing in a minute, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, come home. If you need to come home today to the Lord, I invite you to do that. Let's pray right now. God, we thank you for your word that tells us how to live into the reality of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would forgive us for seeking attention, for being so aware of how we're perceived by people on the outside. God, even now as people are streaming this, I'm, I'm aware of my pride. I'm aware of how people see me. God, I pray that we would only please you, the high king of heaven, our treasure. God, help us not to seek anything in this world with our lives that we would chase after you, that we would run hard after you, that we would spend our time and energy and our talent pursuing you, oh God, knowing, as Aaron read earlier from Romans 5, that you do not disappoint, that our hope in you will never fail us as the counterfeit gods of this world so often do. God, I thank you that you've shown us a way to live into the goodness of your grace. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who put on flesh and entered into our reality, into this broken world, in order to fix it and bring it back. That he died an atoning death, that he took your judgment and your wrath upon himself so that we don't have to. And that he rose again, conquering death, the power of sin forever. God, I pray that in this crisis time, in this season of Lent, that you would teach us to nourish our hunger for you and to reduce our appetite for the things of this world. God, I pray that you would become our treasure more and more as we learn to love you. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, as we sing today and, and you want to reach out, you can get on our Facebook page and, and our youth pastor, Trey, is on the Facebook feed right now. You can uh, tell him that, that you want to give your life to Christ. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you. Call 297-5303 and talk to Lil or, or Rachel. They're standing by right now to, to pray with you as well. Whatever it is that you're going through, if you have specific needs too at home, call us, email us. Uh, let us know. Give us a message on Facebook. We want to be there for you. But the most important thing you can do during this time is to come home. I'm not talking about sheltering in place. I'm talking about coming back to the Lord your God. Let's do that now as we sing softly and tenderly.